Okay, if I, I can just introduce our other speaker, which is uh, Tim Schweinen. Uh, Tim's a departmental lecturer and associate professor here in the Transport Studies and Human Geography. Um, so many of you, I'm sure, know Tim better than I do. Um, he's co-director of the Research Council's UK-funded centre on innovation and energy demand, in which the universities of Sussex, Manchester, and Oxford collaborate. As part of this centre, he leads a research project on innovations in urban transport, from which this current presentation will be taken. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to Nigel for a really useful overview. And my presentation is, uh, in many ways, complementary to uh, what N Nigel was talking about. I'll be sort of offering a, a, a wider context, if you like, because I'll be talking about labs, local uh, uh, economic partnerships, and um, sort of across the whole of the UK. And through that, we'll also reflect a little bit on what is going on in the Oxfordshire uh, region. And what I'll be talking, basically my argument comes in, uh, in three steps. Uh, so we see that with the lab formation process, we see a new, a renewed pro-growth approach in transport planning. Uh, and I think this comes with many benefits, and I'll be talking a little bit about those, but it also comes with risks. One of them being that some of the benefits in environmental and social terms uh, of uh, recent policies and also of more community grassroots uh, initiatives are at risk of being cancelled out by uh, some of the initiatives that we see. However, these developments do not occur at the same rate or at the same, in, in the same way uh, in, across uh, the UK. Uh, I think Oxfordshire is a place where uh, I think we do see uh, many environmental benefits still being, being realised. But there are significant differences across the UK and with the whole uh, lab process, I think those are only going to increase. Uh, so I'll be talking a little bit about the rise of labs, offer a little bit of context, and then talk a little bit about the research uh, project from which sort of the presentation derives, and then give some uh, empirical findings on, uh, on labs and, and transport planning that sort of uh, hopefully can, can feed into the discussion later. I think it's really important that uh, to understand LEPS as a longer process of state restructuring in England. And it's about sort of creating uh, or reconfiguring a layer of, of regional governance in between the national state and, and, and local authorities. Um, sometimes they're seen as a coalition government's replacement of uh, the regional development authorities that were instituted by Labour in, um, some time ago. And they are based on a different philosophy, a more place-based philosophy to regional development and the rebalancing of the national economy. And they really sort of need to be seen in, part of, uh, in the context of a wider agenda of, of increasing uh, competitiveness in an increasingly globalised economy and also sort of the, the wider localism agenda of the current government. Uh, I think that narrative is a bit too simple because the, the disbandment of the regional development authorities was already instituted under Labour, and there is a strong influence of EU 
policy here in the sense that the UK has signed up to the Lisbon Treaty and some of the principles enshrined into that and the subsidiarity principle and the territorial cohesion principles are really, really important aspects of that. So the idea is kind of that uh, government is done at the level, at, at the lowest level possible. So there needs to be some strong regional level of, of government, uh, and obviously territorial cohesion speaks for itself. And I think you can even argue that something needed to be done in order, in order for the UK to qualify for new rounds of European fundings, yeah, and sort of the European structural and investment funds that, that Nigel talked about as well. Uh, but it was not just about rescaling regional government, government. It was also about reinventing or re-engineering the character of the existing regional governance. The idea really was to, to align the, uh, the spaces of governance, as we as geographers would like to say, with economic spaces, spaces of economic function. Um, and also to move from a more hierarchical model of space firmly set within the public sector as the regional development authorities were towards a more fluid processual kind of geography much more networked involving multiple stakeholders so it's not just public sector it's very much also businesses and, and other uh, stakeholders in the, in, in the community and so, so we see this kind of move from, from a more tree-like structure like the old RDAs were towards a more uh, what, what uh, geographers call a more rhizomatic structure, which is not much more networked, much flatter, um, much more chaotic in many ways. If we look at a map, we can clearly see that on the left, the regional development authorities, um, and on the right, the uh, the labs of, of encircled Oxfordshire. Uh, and one thing that you can see if you look at the map, at the map is that the idea of creating spaces of government that sort of coincide with face, spaces of economic functioning hasn't been as successful as was originally in, in, envisaged. And I think Nigel already, already uh, referred to that when he was, talking, he was explaining how Oxlab is sort of collaborating increasingly with, it, with its neighbours. Um, sure, there are some places where there are significant overlaps between individual labs. Uh, sort of the north part of Oxfordshire is a good example of that. Sort of the the area of Bicester, uh, uh, Banbury. Um, but on the whole, you could say, uh, and that's one of the points, one of the concerns that in the academic literature can be found about the whole lab formation process that there are strong path dependencies in the sense that labs sort of have followed existing collaborations, existing relations between local authorities. Uh, so there are more political constructs than real functional economic spaces. And that has led to some discussion about whether some of these are too, too small. And I think we, yeah, we kind of get that sense from the way labs are increasingly cooperating, but also lacking fluidity. Remember, that was one of the key, uh, key points that was sort of intended with, 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 with these figures. Um, but that is not the only sort of concern that we can see in the economic 
literature, because academics are also concerned about what, what we could frame as partial participation, in the sense that it's very much uh, the public sector and businesses, but stakeholders with a very strong, very strong advocacy for social and environmental causes are often underrepresented at, uh, on, on lab boards. Of course, this was never planned as such, but I think there is, there is, there is an issue here that this is not a, a genuine participation from, uh, from wider society in this, this new interesting form of governance. I think academics also uh, are concerned about issues of capability that uh, have yeah, hindered, I would say, some of the labs. One is that labs have to work in a very complex field of uh, government, of sort of national level forces, where some departments are much more willing to let go and to relegate control and uh, decision-making powers to the local level than others. Uh, the Department for Communities and Local Government is probably more decentral, decentrally oriented than uh, than DFT, and then certainly like like BIS, they really sort of they really want to actually maintain control over what is happening. So that makes it very difficult for uh, labs to sort of operate in. I think there's also concern about uh, academics that many labs have not yet developed the capacity to deliver the genuine place-based visions, aspirations, and strategies. Uh, I think Oxford, Oxfordshire has a, has a, has a really, uh, has, a, has a reasonably coherent vision about how it wants to see itself develop, but I don't think you, you, that is something that you see to the same extent in all labs. There's significant differences in, uh, in that regard. And actually, if you combine, if you were to compare many of these different visions, there's striking similarities. Uh, elements of place, elements of connectivity, element, elements of skill, uh, uh, skill and capacity building in the population are something that you see virtually in all of the, uh, of the strategic economic plans. So that raises the question to what extent this is genuinely about place-based visions and to what extent this is more like national level type of philosophy. So it's a very complex set of issues. Also, I think you'll see that in, in, in certain labs, there's a wide array of, of projects being, uh, being undertaken, but how they relate and how they actually relate to a vision are more than just a set of individual projects is not always that clear. So the wider additionality of having this kind, kind of approach is not always that clear. Very quickly then, our research on, on innovations was already mentioned, Center of Innovation and, and Energy Demands were in, that I'm involved in with uh, Dave Bannister and, 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 and Neon Akialkin, uh, together with people in, in Sussex and Manchester. Uh, and we were sort of, our focus is end-use energy demand. How can we reduce the consumption of energy significantly in light of uh, the Climate Change Act objectives, uh, whatever one thinks of the Climate Change Act and whether it will actually remain to exist in the way it is at the moment, we don't know, but it is legally binding and it is unclear whether we're going to actually reach those, achieve those targets. Uh, they're also coming more and more sort of uh, energy end use 
or energy consumption targets from within the EU. And uh, again, it's not entirely clear whether the UK is able to sort of reach those targets. The approach that our centre takes is that systemic change uh, in transport, housing, and a range of other uh, sectors is required. <coughs> Meaning, in the transport sector, it's not it's not a, a, not sufficient to just put uh, electric vehicles out there. Something more needs to happen if you really want to make sure that they diffuse throughout society and become the, the sort of the mainstay of the transport system. So all there needs to be change in all elements of, of, of these systems. So not just about vehicles or infrastructure. It's also very much about cultures and symbolic meanings, regulation, uh, markets and so on and so forth. And the idea behind our sort of our research is that transitions can be triggered by what we call low energy innovations. And something that we define very broadly as new technologies, organizational arrangements, behaviors that can be expected to reduce energy consumption and or increase energy efficiency. So electric vehicles, car sharing, bike sharing, um, those are all examples of low energy innovations that we're studying as part of this, uh, as part of the research that we're doing. And the project that we're doing is sort of trying to understand why certain cities, certain places are more successful in the emergence and, and development of these low energy innovations in transport. And we do that by looking at specific cities, city regions really, in, in the UK. So we're looking at Oxford, we're looking at Brighton, we're looking at, uh, at Liverpool or Merseyside, Merseyside. I'm not going to go through all of the various reasons, Suffice it to say that Oxford is a very interesting case because it has a very strong bus uh, sector uh, which is very well connected with local government. Uh, it also has a reasonably strong uh, cycling, uh, cycling sector. But at the same time, it has very strong links with the auto automobile industry as, as well. And there's the issue of you have both a city council and you have a, a county council, which makes it quite difficult in, in governmental terms as to how, how uh, responsibilities are distributed. Brighton is in some ways similar to Oxford. Uh, it, it's a leader in bus travel, just like Oxford. It claims that it is the city with the highest bus use outside of, outside of uh, London. Um, it's definitely stronger on cycling. Um, it is a, a unitary uh, authority, which is quite a significant difference. So rather than there being a city and a county council, there's just a city council makes things a lot easier. Uh, and obviously it's led by the, it's the only place with the, uh, with the administration led by the Green Party, which has had really significant impact, especially in terms of support for cycling. It's really, really different from what we see in any other place in the country. Liverpool is a completely different beast in the sense that it's uh, uh, fast, one of the fastest growing economies in the country, at the same time enduring social issues, uh, and from a, from a governance point of view, is in the process of becoming a combined authority, which means that the lo five lo six local authorities are currently sort of merging 
in, in some kind of, of regional public authority. And that brings with it lots of changes, lots of uncertainties about roles, about distributions, about funding, uh, and, and so on and so forth. On top of that, it has Mercy Travel, which is the regional transit, transport authority, uh, which used to be one of the frontrunners in this country in terms of uh, innovations uh, and, and sort of experimenting with electric vehicles, with biofuels, a number of other uh, initiatives, but has sort of gone through a very dramatic process of change in recent, uh, in, in recent years, uh, partly because of austerity, partly because there's a new, uh, a new head, a new director in place, um, and organizations really sort of yeah, trying to find a new, a new role for itself in relation to issues of low carbon, low energy transport. Now you may wonder, what does all of this mean? Uh, and, and how is it relevant to thinking about LEPs? I think that the link is quite, quite simple in the sense that a lot of what we see in Oxfordshire in terms of innovation and low energy uh, transport is being funded through national government funding streams that are increasingly becoming tied in to funding streams that go through the lab. Uh, so LSTF is low, uh, Local Sustainable Transport Fund, uh, the Green Bus Fund, and the cycling, City Cycling Ambition Grant. Uh, this is the, the, the project that funds the, uh, the, the Plains reconstruction, which was also on, uh, on Nigel's slides. Uh, and I think what, what we see is if you sort of look at the recent history of what has gone on in this region in terms of funding uh, uh, low energy innovation, we see very clearly that this has increasingly been, been linked to discourses around economic growth, around uh, these innovations contributing to the, the wider goal of creating e economic growth. Um, on top of that, I think there's also the issue that some of the, uh, particularly sort of the, the big road-oriented infrastructure projects may increase emissions, energy consumption, and sort of not be entirely compatible with some of the other goals, uh, 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 such as those uh, that underpin uh, the LSTF projects. And uh, just to sort of, again, show the, uh, the knowledge spine, sort of if you look through a range of documents and a range of bits uh, and, and funding streams, uh, then you see gradually the, 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 the pro-growth rhetoric, pro-growth discourse becoming increasing becoming stronger and stronger. If you compare the two bits for LSDF money, both of which were successful, uh, then you see that uh, issues of economic growth are much more central to this one than uh, to the original 2011 bit. Uh, the, 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 the original 2011 bit sort of funds a lot of what is going on at the moment in, in Haddington, Thornhill Park and Rides, um, and everything that goes on in that area, the, the, the second bit is really funding work around bus and cycle connectivity uh, around Didcot. Some findings from our project then. I think there's very clear positives 
that lab formation have brought to transport planning in uh, at least two of the cities where I'm currently doing, doing the work, Brighton and Oxford, where I think uh, local pol politicians and transport makers uh, have a, a su substantial appreciation of what's going on. And I think there's two reasons why they appreciate that. I think one is the further institutionalization of the business case as sort of a way of thinking about uh, a, a way of making decisions about what to take forward and what not to take forward. And I think it's about sort of regional cooperation and greater agency at the uh, local level. And this is a, a quote from an interview that we did not, not too long ago, which I think really talks very, very nicely about uh, sort of this, 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 this notion of temptation. And I think on one level, this is very, very sensible what's being said here. Because, yeah, we all know that there have been many projects in the past where government money has been, you, you could even say squandered, on things for which there was not really a demand or there was not really um, much of a future. And then when the funding stops, the project stops as well. However, if we think about this a little bit, a, bit, a, bit, a little bit further, and we sort of try to think from the perspective of, of Michel Foucault, for instance, um, then I think a question to be asked here in relation to that quote is what is sort of positioned as normal and as healthy, and what or who is con constituted as abnormal or, or inappropriate. And that's not to sort of make judgments on, 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 on either, what I'm interested in, what these kinds of distinctions do, what kind of effects they generate. And uh, what, for instance, does it mean for investment into radical innovation? We know that radical innovation is probably needed if we are to reach the targets with regard to energy reduction and, um, and, and emissions. But we also know that radical innovation is very difficult because there's, genuine, there's normally no market, there's no demand. A demand needs to be created. And that's where the business case uh, mentality really, really is starting, to, starting to, to, to create troubles. Because it's very, very difficult to create a solid business case for a radical innovation. Think about electric vehicle recharging infrastructure. There's no business case in most cases. Or think about uh, a bike sharing scheme. It's very difficult to have a proper, convincing, solid business case. So this kind of mentality may have effects for low energy innovation that, we, that may not be necessarily beneficial. The other point about cooperation, I think is really nicely articulated in another interview that I had with a politician in Brighton and Hove. I cannot say more about who or what this politician is or what he does because everyone can then identify this person. But I think the interview brings out really, really clear some of the benefits of greater regional cooperation. However, I think it's also, however, however valuable this is, I think we also have to appreciate that this is something that really differs from place to place. Because when I ask similar questions on cooperation, 
in uh, in Liverpool, I got a, a much a, a, not 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 the um, the answer I got was not that not not that uh, convincing. In a sense, it's just another partner, um, and in a context where there is huge changes in sort of who does what, as we currently see in Liverpool, I think this is, this is quite significant. It almost feels like having, the, having to engage with the lab is a burden on top of everything else that is going on in this, in this region where changes are so, uh, are so, uh, uh, so rife. Also, it appears that the lab is not as central to what is going on, at least in, in terms of transport planning, as it is in some of the other regions in this country. And that is partly because the lab is much more interested in sort of strengthening the freight and logistics sector around Liverpool uh, and is much less engaged with sort of passenger transport <coughs> issues. We return to the politician from Brighton and Hove, who also said, articulated really clearly sort of this, this sense of greater local agency. And obviously he is referring to the, the previous situation, the southeast region, which was one of the regional development agencies. Um, and, and he actually says, well, so it feels like a body we have an influence in. And I know, I think there's arguments there to be won but you know we've done relatively well out of that so far. I think that's really interesting, really telling. It suggests that this process is not necessarily consensual, and it's not free from struggle and sort of regional politics as well. And I think you can also very clearly see that Brighton is the stronger partner in the region. <coughs> They've done relatively well out of that. I think if, you, if I were to ask a similar question to uh, his colleagues, in, 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 some, of the, uh, in, in uh, some of the other local authorities, I might get a significantly different perspective. I think there's also risks with uh, left's role in transport policy. And I'll just talk about two of these. One is on project delivery, and the other is on, on planning philosophy. This is a, a, from an interview that I had in, in Liverpool, which is one of the few labs that has a strategic energy action plan. Um, and this was the person who wrote that, the strategic action plan. Uh, the strategic energy action plan was actually written by people in local government. So it's not a lab document. It was later sort of taken over by the lab. But it, was, it originally comes from... Uh, from, from uh, local government. And I think what he's saying here is quite interesting because he is saying, well, the lab is focused largely on, on investment projects and it's about delivery. What they're less good at is sort of what he calls holistic maintenance. Any meaningful active monitoring of the project pipeline is not happening in the way we would like to see it. I'm not suggesting that this is something that you see across labs but there is a point here about to what extent sort of uh, the lab uh, and, and the labs are primarily delivery agencies and it's about to what extent they actually sort of reconsider the visioning and sort of go back to that more strategic thinking, longer term thinking. Um, and we may not see that to the same extent in all uh, labs in, in the country. 
I think there's also an issue that sort of goes back to the history of transport planning, where predict and provide philosophy has been very, very influential. Predict and provide is an approach that came into being after the World War, the last World War, and it was effectively transport planners predicting what the demand would be, then equating that demand to need, and then sort of providing the infrastructure to meet that need. That's an approach that has been very influential up until around 1990, a little bit longer perhaps. And then there was a, a short break, then we sort of got a uh, got what you could say predict and provide 2.0, uh, of which I think High Speed 2 is perhaps the biggest, uh, the best example. It's still sort of a predict demand and then sort of provide for that approach, but it is not just roads construction, it's any form of, tra of transport infrastructure. Um, but still very much at the national level. What we now see, we see something similar reoccurring at the local level. It's different in the sense that it's not just public sector, the state that's doing it. It's often with explicit involvement of uh, businesses and other local stake stakeholders. And what we see, if you sort of careful, one of the things I've been very interested in doing over the past couple of months is try to unpack what is going on. And I think what you see is that there's, there's across various labs, there's a clear discourse being, being, being mobilized in the sense that, they very, that there's a very strong belief in the idea of fast, smooth, and efficient mobility as a sign of progress, as a sign of opportunity, as a sign of attractiveness. And this sort of goes back to the, the, the very influential idea that time is money in the sense that any time spent on travel is a time wasted and could be used more productively in, in, in a variety of ways. Uh, there's much to be said for that, but we also know from the transport literature that things are not always that easy for a number of reasons. People experience time in different ways. People may actually like traveling. And very importantly, there's also the issue of rebound in the sense that if you provide infrastructure to speed up transport, it's quite likely that people do use that, use that opportunity not so much to cut on traveling, but to travel more. For instance, by living out further or by shifting modes or whatever. So it's, it's not as simple as a lot of this discourse uh, suggests. There's also something that I think is particular to the, the more recent thinking. There's a strong techno-optimism in the sense that there's a strong emphasis on, on IT uh, information technology as capable of solving many of the challenges regarding capacity and regarding the unreliability of transport. And I think we see a lot of that here in this particular region where there's a strong emphasis on IT uh, integration into transport management. Um, and one of the other things that we see, maybe not with all of the recent uh, LEP-facilitated funding, but definitely with uh, some of the other projects and, and some of the regions where, where I've been, is that we see the use of conventional transport models as sort of under the auspices of the local, uh, local authorities being used to legitimize wider stakeholder preferences, sort of wider... Um, the, the wider preferences, particularly of the business sector. So we see a very interesting form of private, 
partner, a private-public partnership in terms of how these models are being used and how they're being used in new ways. Obviously, this is only possible as long as everyone believes in the models. So as long as they stay black-boxed, as long as, they, as no one really challenges what these models do and about the truths that, that, they, uh, that they produce and, and that they're built on. And again, I'm returning to this politician sort of show you the second half of the quote, which shows that a lot of the, that actually it's not always that easy to use these models to make a case that improving a road, sort of bringing in more cycling infrastructure in this case, because that's most of what they do in, uh, in, in Brighton. Actually, to build a, a, a good business case that is actually underpinned by these local by the local transport models. So there's all sorts of issues there. But largely because of the way DFT functions and sort of what is happening at national government, we see that there's huge pressure to use these transport models in this way to make these kinds of arguments. However, there's also regional variations. Uh, and I think I've done a comparative analysis of, of, of a couple of uh, strategic uh, economic plans. I think there, is, uh, there, is, uh, uh, there, there are differences across them uh, in, in a number of ways, in, in visions, in uh, strategies, in how they understand sustainability, and about how they weigh the, the, uh, the relative weights they, they attach to economic sustainability, social sustainability, environmental sustainability. Um, and I've done a more, a more in-depth uh, evaluation of the, the three case studies, so Liverpool, uh, Brighton, and Oxford. Uh, it's qualitative, so it's not, you cannot do this kind of evaluation in a meaningful way on the basis of hard quantitative information. So it's on the basis of the sort of budgets that... Uh, that Nigel showed us, but also sort of a, a text analysis of, of a range of documents, as well as the interviews that I've been doing. And I think we do see some very interesting, uh, interesting results there. I think Merseyside is most committed to road construction. Almost all the money they have that's sort of channeled through the lab is going towards road construction. And my explanation, I think that is because they're really interested in sort of improving the accessibility of the port area. And that's why they want to focus on, on, on road construction. Oxfordshire is the most of the three committed to investment in public transport. There's still a significant amount of budget being, going into uh, road construction, but it's, uh, it, it's much more balanced. Brighton is somewhere in between. However, another interesting difference is that I think in Liverpool and Brighton you see that transport investment is much more seen also as a means of increasing employability and reduce social inequality. They use different reasons, different motivations to sort of justify some of the investments <coughs> that they do in new transport infrastructure. Uh, whereas in Oxford it's really about economic growth and there's a little bit of carbon, but it's primarily about its sort of uh, strengthening a region that is already very successful. Uh, that is also, I think, one of the reasons why we see a, a, strong, a stronger focus on technological innovation 
particularly smart public transport with, to which Nigel already result, uh, referred to uh, in, in his presentation. Some final remarks then. One is that I think there's large uncertainties for the, for the near future. I don't think we really know what's going to happen with labs in, the, in, in a couple of years. They will survive the next general election um, and they will persist. But it's also quite likely that we'll see changes in form, that we'll see, we'll see functions being expanded, because I think that's one of the things that we've seen over the past five years. No one really knew what they were supposed to do in 2010, but the, the function have greatly, uh, greatly expanded, and I think we'll see more of that happening in, uh, in, in the near future. I think there's also a very interesting discussion to be had about what happens with labs alongside combined authorities uh, and other uh, local and regional uh, public sector bodies. I don't think the two will be merged, uh, but maybe, maybe Nigel can, can say about it. But I think they really do different things. They have really different agendas, different purposes. So I think they, they, they will exist alongside each other, which creates all kinds of complications from a governance perspective. There are some relative certainties, however. I think on the whole, uh, economic dimensions of sustainability will be privileged over environmental and social uh, dimensions. And I also think, Nigel may disagree, I think that opening up lab boards uh, to a wider range of state stakeholders would increase sustainability and it would make labs more democratic. There will also be more regional differentiation. I think uh, there are regions where we see socially and environmental benign investments uh, and I think Oxfordshire is well placed to be one of those regions. Thank you. <laughs>